By ingesting the 12 months worth of data you sent, that's about two terabytes worth. Wow. What you're looking at now is a typical midweek traffic flow. Green is good, orange indicates slower than average, red is heavy. Now we can manually input a range of external factors. Wet weather, public holidays, RDOs for the industrial sector. Breakdown on a major arterial. That's pretty impressive. So we've taken your project. The road upgrade, extra lanes, on and off ramp lengthening. We've factored in all those improvements. So starting with current flow during peak, then during construction, some problems. Of course. And then when it opens, oh, that's brilliant. Amazing. And with the machine learning, we can keep it going. Year two, year three, year four. Wait, wait, what's going on? What happened? Where'd the green go? What happened? Why does the traffic get worse? Have you heard of the Jevons paradox? I'm hoping they're a death metal band. It basically states that the better you make something like a road, the more people will use it. Isn't that a good thing? No, it means you spend a lot of money now for a very short-term benefit. So there is some benefit? Oh, sure. Average travel times crossing the city will be cut by two and a half minutes. Or a little less. Call it two. Really? And that lasts for 14, 15 months. Then declines. Uh, no, stays flat. Then declines. Well, for $300 billion, I guess we were hoping for something a little more dramatic. Two and a half minutes. Call it two. You don't look happy. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the next episode of the Modern History HSC podcast. We've had a little bit of a break because the kids have been on school holidays, but I've managed to wrangle in a mate of mine who's a really interesting character, someone who is really involved in the community that I grew up in, um, someone who's passionate about education and issues around education, but someone who's also a business owner who has to deal with a lot of macro issues that we talk about in modern history um, and the, I guess, the world more broadly. So how you going, Mitch? Good, Mike. Thanks for having me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mitch and I were just talking about before we came on that we're going to be getting into looking at the macro world, looking at how business owners or entrepreneurs have to consider that and maybe looking at history and like you don't even have to be at high school doing it as a senior subject, just like reading the newspaper or like even just finding a YouTube channel or a podcast, which goes into stuff that just isn't popular culture. It'll help you work out some, I guess, some first principles about how the, the way the world works. So this is what we just want to encourage people to think about who are listening to this podcast. So let's start off. Mitch, do you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction, say, to you? Um, I think I want to start off with what's your interest in the community of Tamworth and what you see as an issue for education? I think, Blake, my interest in education and regional, regional uh, is equity of opportunity for push kids. Uh, I'm a bush kid. I grew up in, um, in a small rural community. Um, the, uh, <laughs> went to a little two-teacher school, 30 kids, and um, my father passed away. He was a shearer, and we had a little silver shirt summer block, and uh, when I was eight, then when we were 10, mum decided it was all a bit too hard, so I moved into young. Um, so I went from a two-teacher school to a classroom full of 30 kids, all boys. Uh, that was a bit of a culture shock, but... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, you know, and so along through that, it was a it was a good enough childhood. Um, but when it got to uh, the start of year nine, I uh, I it dawned on me that I could have left, I could leave school in eighteen months' time at the end of year ten. And a lot of my mates couldn't wait; they uh, they wanted to get out and explore and you know do their thing. Uh, 
And uh, what I saw in front of me, for the career choices didn't spin my wheels, didn't get me motivated. I mean, the options were become a bank teller, become a building apprentice, labourer type thing, um, shearer, wool classing, truck driving. But yeah, it didn't really appeal to me. So I sort of floated through year nine and then year 10, wanting to know what the heck am I going to do? And um, and the army was an attraction because I was in army cadets. I loved that. I loved the, the part about the navigation and the map reading and the maths involved in that. And I was a bit of a maths type guy. Um, you know, I wasn't good at public speaking. It takes me a while to get my thoughts together before I can get up and speak off the cuff. Um, but <clears throat> we, um, I work with a, the general work experience, and this is where work experience is such an important thing. I was lucky to spend a day with the local surveyor, Larry Wordsworth and Young. Now, Larry was a Kiwi. But that was the first time I saw uh, desktop computers. Uh, it was, you know, I said, what's this surveying about? Well, how do you think the property boundaries get defined in your neighbourhood? Um, you know, the roads get built. So it's not just some guy in a grader. He just pushes a button, the blade goes to a certain level, and some guy comes along and sprays black stuff with a bit of rock in it. It's, yeah. it's a bit more science <laughs> behind it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that was it. I sort of kept that in the back of my mind. I did plumbing. I probably could have become a plumber because it was an outdoors thing. I was attracted to the outdoors. But there was an intellectual challenge to that that I enjoyed. So anyway, so to become a surveyor, I had to go to university. Um, so to UNSW, I went. I got enough marks to, to go to uni. Um, and that's all I focused on. I didn't want to get any more or get any less. I just knew what I had to do. Yeah. And, I, and I worked to save money packing groceries at Woolworths to, to give me across the, you know, to pay for the pay for the incidentals. I was able to get an allowance from the, the federal government because uh, my mother was a widow and low income um, background. So that was uh, lucky there too. So off to Sydney I go and that was a culture shock. So, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was interesting. It was interesting so many different levels. Um, there was a presumption that because I was at UNSW that I'd gone to a boarding school in Sydney and my parents owned thousands of acres that were wealthy. Um, what, where were we going to go for holidays? And when I said, I'm going to Campbelltown, the being pigs in the housing estate, you know, they, you know, it, it was good. But I also met, I met people who were uh, from overseas students who come from places like Malaysia. Now, for us surveying engineering types, uh, to make us well-rounded individuals, we were forced to do liberal arts studies, uh, subjects. So, of course, I picked stuff that didn't have exams in it. I, you know, go to the easiest route, you know, because the, yeah. the math science ones were pretty full on. And we had a 26-hour workload. It was not like a commerce or an arts degree. It was eight or 12 hours. It was pretty full on. And um, so I was looking for a bit of a, of a break. So some guys did economics and things like that. And I, I just said, no, I'm going for something easy. So I'd pick things like modern drama or political conflict in Australia or Australian welfare history. Yeah. Anyway, modern drama, I'm sitting out there looking at this guy's flash bike and he's an Asian. Now, to me, an Asian is an Asian. Like, I had no idea. You could have said he's from Timbuktu, I believe you. And I started <laughs> yeah. talking about his flash bike and, and I said, where are you from? He says, Malaysia. I said, what are, you, what are you doing in Australia? Can't you go to uni in, in Malaysia? He said, no, no. I said, what do you mean you can't go? What's why? He said, there's a quota system over there. I'm ethnic Chinese and the, and the Malay government has a, has a restriction on the amount of university places for people like me. Yeah, okay. So my family's paying for me to be in 
to come to Australia. I said, shit, that's no pressure. I mean, what, your mum and dad? No, no, all the aunts and uncles, all the cousins are all chipping in to send this one bloke to do mechanical engineering at UNSW. Yeah, trying to get a leg up. like Trying, trying to get, to you know, I want this kid to have an education. Ladder. So, you know, and I thought, wow, that's that's full on. So, you know, this this idea you have about the world was, was, was you know, <laughs> Look, my family's been rural contractors since the 1830s, you know. We're good at killing cows and skinning sheep and, you know, driving um, sheep, sheep to market and, and fencing and that type of stuff, driving headers and trucks and whatever. And it was um, it was the start of really learning about there's a bigger world out there than my part of the world in rural New South Wales. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, okay, so I was living sort of between two worlds at that stage, between the cousins and the uncles and the aunts of, yeah, and my family who were still stuck in that world. And this new world that was like, you know, well, this is the international world. And so I was able to straddle both worlds and I still can. I can go and talk to anyone. People can comment about that. I can talk to you know, Barnaby Joyce or you know, the Prime Minister or the Premier and, you know, I articulate a case because I, I don't see them as being anything special. A lot of people and a lot of my staff think that if you're from the city, you must be smart. And I've had to fight my guy's self-belief that destroyed that self-belief that they, they I think country kids just naturally have. People in the, in the city are smarter. Well, no, they've just had more opportunities. And in fact, you've got skill sets that they don't have. You're resilient. Like we're going through droughts. We're going through um, mice, we're going through mice plagues. We're, we're going through COVID. Now, COVID, COVID's nothing compared to what we've been going through the last 20 years with Fire, droughts, floods—you know it. Regions cop this stuff all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> our high death rates on the roads, our poor mortality rate for um, our health health outcomes are poor. Our educational levels are poor. You know, and somehow we still battle through. So there's a there's a, a resilience that we have. Now, okay, what I'm looking for is like I had an opportunity to go to Sydney, and it was only because I wanted to do that particular degree. To do that degree now, you've got to get something like 92 out of 100. Now, that's just unattainable for most push kids. The same degree that you did before? Yeah. Yep. So oh, yeah. Back then, it was 270 out of 500. I got 322, which is pretty good. Mm. But, you know, I got through in four years. There was only 12 of us did it in four years. We had 93 starting. A lot dropped out because they didn't know what they wanted to do, but quite a few had to, you know, repeat subjects. So I was pretty proud I got through. I played footy, I went to parties, I met people, and I do have a guy who's at New, Newcastle Uni. He just lives in his room and gets HDs. And I say, you're missing the point of a university education. Yeah. You can do that at home by distance um, education. You're supposed to meet people and become a well-rounded individual. And the people in my bottom third of my year at uni end up running organisations or businesses. Because we're the gregarious ones. We would go out and network. We'd be out partying and talking. You know, because I'm curious about people. I'm curious about why you're doing this, Blake. I'm curious about, you know, why does certain towns locate where they are? Why are the streetscapes the way they are? Why why does some businesses thrive and others don't? Why do some towns why are some towns more successful than others? Yeah. Because I drive around all regional New South Wales in my in my job, you see this, you see this as soon as you walk in driving through the, the, the the town limits why why what some some town one town is better than the other like, <laughs> so um so for us uh there's there's a couple of things driving me on ed, regional education one is 
equity of opportunity. Two is we're in the fourth industrial revolution. Every, every, uh, every industrial revolution is required an uptake or an increase in someone's, everyone's education limits. So my grandmother only went to school to, to sixth class, year six, because that's all you needed. My mother went to year nine, that's the leaving certificate or intermediary certificate, because that's all you needed. She went to work on the border of a telephone exchange, which was yeah. all automated. I did the HSC and uh, you know, I was on that cusp between having a year 10 and year 12 education. Yeah. Now, really, if you're not having a, no, Brad, Professor Bradley believes we need to have 40% of our population with a degree. Now, we don't come near that in, in regional New South Wales. In some pockets we do because of the proximity to university towns, but generally we don't. Yeah. Education, uh, sorry, agriculture, transport uh, is requiring a higher level of uh, education. Now, that can either be done through a university or by industry. And industry doesn't really have the capacity to, to deliver everything on. It needs to partner with the university. So for me, I'd need surveyors and engineers. I can't get them. So I get these kids from um, local schools and I tra uh, train them and pay for 50% of the cost to do a uni degree and mentor them through that. Yeah. In your profession in, in teaching, there's a teacher shortage. I'm, I'm hearing something like 20,000 new teachers have to come out. Oh, yeah, it's, so it's huge. And why don't we do pupil pupil teachers? So teachers, uh, you know, the, these teachers that uh, trainee teachers are on the job learning whilst they're studying. Why do we have to have them come straight out of university, find out a third of them don't want to be in and leave within five years? So, yeah, I think we need to be, be like, I was going to say, there could be some like burnout factors and all that stuff yeah. as well that we might have at some point gone down the road um and i know this is the same for nurses as well with um nicole being a nurse who's my wife mm. um so we've probably gone down this road of there's too much ass covering nowadays <laughs> that you have to be spending like um oh, yeah the amount of paperwork that we're doing um yeah. in teaching in new south wales is like some of the highest in the world um like several times more than what's happening in places where they're absolutely killing us in terms of educational results. So that's right. So might we, be a re-look at that. We, okay, now we're getting into it. So what's the outcome you want? And we haven't defined that yet, really. Um, and that's where hmm. the community needs to step in. So it, uh, <laughs> the, the health outcomes. Is it okay for Aboriginal people to die, be dead by 55 in all Kenya? Is that acceptable? Probably not. But no. why do we allow that to happen? Why is it okay for um, our, you know, Tamworth has got the highest smoking rate? So what are we going to do about that? So I took the view that uh, for, our, for Tamworth, we need to, we need to, you know, as a community, we need to own it and we need to fight for it. And I've had many people say that we don't need a university campus because it's one up the road. I said, right, oh, if it's one up the road, how come no one's going to it? Well, you know, they need to get their act together. All right. Well, you know, there's probably other reasons for that. You're just, you're just, mate, you've just applied your mindset to it. And because you've done it that way, you are projecting your uh, societal uh, framework onto others. <clears throat> so yeah. people aren't going because of their community doesn't think that they're worthy of going. They don't, they think it's unattainable. And, and once you've made that decision, you, you can do whatever you like. You can offer free scholarships and a lot might still go. So we need to change it. We need to, to the model that just the traditional model, 
which is basically selling to a middle-class uh, clientele, will not work when you don't have a majority of middle-class. And Tamworth and a lot of country towns don't have a majority of middle-class. You've got a majority of, of lower middle-class and working-class. Yeah. And you can make as good much money being a builder or a bricklayer or truck driver as you can be or more than being a school teacher or a surveyor. Yeah. And you have um, credibility in society and all that, but we do need nurses and we need new doctors. The last thing, and I'll shut up for a minute, <laughs> the professions right, used to be trained in-house. Uh, the only degrees required was a divinity degree or theology degree um, and a medical degree. And the medical degree was generally, half of it was in the hospitals anyway. So most professions are practical trades with a lot of theory thrown in there as well. Um, and they expect universities to just punch out fully uh, competent professionals just for an academic stream is, is mis... Uh, well, it's wrong. It's it's not. It's you do need the educational base, but you also need if you need it's a four year degree to become a teacher or a surveyor. It's four years professional training as well. So, then, and that's when the profession has to step out. And I don't. And so the the uh, so for us for us surveyors, there's five competency assessments the guys have to do, and it can take five to six years to do it. So because we as a society expect the professional to be competent. So why does the Department of Education have this bureaucratic requirement that you guys fill in? So why can't I allow Blake and he's, he's got a master's degree in education with a teacher who's a fully qualified teacher and two teachers aides run a cohort of 60 kids? With a, we all know, set the defined outcomes. I mean, there's got to be a global requirements, but that's the definition of a professional. And mind you, I should be able to see you if you cock it up. Yeah. <laughs> so... so we, we don't have that. We have this safety net and, and, um, and education and transport and policing and um, also the four big sectors that the government really care about because that's where they politically can be hurt. Okay. Um, so. If I could just, because I still want to keep going down this line of thought that you're on with the, with the ideas that you're discussing and I wholeheartedly agree with a lot of them and I could also be chiming in, but if we want to bring it back <laughs> to i guess still thinking about the kids that are doing this subject or the kids that are curious yep. and thinking about you know thinking about what their first principles are i reckon that one of the best skills that you can get from being curious or like looking at say patterns or periods of times of history is learning the power of trends like how powerful trends are and that if even if you're a business owner, an entrepreneur, you're a politician, like whatever, um, like an investor, if you can identify a trend um, and the trends that are going to be like headwinds and support you or the trends that are going to make your job impossible, no matter how smart you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how much money you have, um, that's a huge edge. So what do you think? are the or what do you see as the biggest headwinds or the biggest trends um, that are either going to perhaps maybe help Australia or perhaps hold it back in all these areas that you're talking about? Um, the Australian Policy Strategic Policy Institute talk about the three C's, climate change, China and COVID. That's um, interesting. Yeah, so... I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, so that's a macro. China, climate change, and uh, and it's going to upend everything, and and that's okay. 
in fact i get nervous when things are too calm and 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 that and um when you get changed a lot, a lot of people go to water and and aren't used to change where well, i thrive on that uh, so i call it scanning the horizon so in my office i told the guys i'm worried about what's over, what's going to happen in the next six months uh, so i've got these timelines of horizon so what's the decade what's the three decades in the future look like um and and for me i have to worry about my staff's immediate problems like sick kids um a client going broke who can't pay you know last month's invoice um trends in the uh investment transport sector uh, uh, state government investment in the transport center because you know when they spend money on building things we get some of that in you know associated with that so I look at um, what's driving state government and the policy uh, settings for that. Uh, where's the dollar spend's going to be? And uh, education, because if I don't have trained staff and uh, people knowing they're going to have a career path, knowing that they're safe too, you know, the regions are actually a nice, safe place to be. Uh, and, uh, and we're a resilient bunch. But um, Things like uh, like the GFC in 2008, that was awful. That was seven months of no income. Now, I had a warning of that from a friend of mine who uh, works for the Commonwealth Bank who said, look, it's going to be bad. Um, I didn't really understand how bad he meant, but it was like depression era bad, where I'd know, you know, the company had no income for seven months. So uh, we came through that okay. We, we lost a fair bit of money, but we survived that. And... Uh, because of that, I had some hubris thinking, you know, we can survive anything, then GFC2 happened too. So there was a bounce about. So I now look at the markets quite quite a lot. So I subscribe to the Fin Review. I read a lot of international stuff, BBC, um, uh, PBS out of the US, that's the public service broadcaster, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Commission equivalent. Mm. I, I watch a lot of SBS. I want to know what's happening with Germany. Um, Europeans realigning away from Europe and probably to their own strategic um, set. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about geopolitics too. I just find it fascinating with the realignments. Um, I've always been a bit of a fan of Winston Churchill and he's, the book I like the most is uh, The History of the English-Speaking Peoples. Um, and there's a couple of thoughts out there that we should, all the English-Speaking people should realign themselves. So, whereas the UK went to Europe forty oh, in the 1960s, dumped all the, uh, the uh, ex-colonies like Australia and New Zealand and say, make your own way. They've had this epiphany and there's a stack of podcasts about that too. So, what's driving it? The anywheres and the, and the, and the, um, the nowhere. So, the people who can, global citizens and those who just can't get past living in their own backyard, who um, can't adapt to change. So, yeah. Uh, so the geopolitical stuff's interesting. So we know we've got nuclear stuff. So we've, jet, we've jettisoned the, the French sub deal. We're going to nuclear stuff. Now I have a client. Now, me in the street, like your students might say, well, what, how's that going to affect me? Yeah, absolutely, well, they would. Okay, it, it may not affect you, but I've got a client who who is right into that space. And he speaks with people like um, uh, General uh, uh, Jim Marlin, used to be an Australian senator, and we talk about strategic stuff, like we we're going to put field farms for our strategic reserves, um, our drone manufacturer. Uh, we don't have anything. We don't microchips. Uh, micro uh, uh, micro um, 
um, circuitry boards. We don't make those. We've had this policy settings in our economy where stick to the stuff you're good at, which is growing sheep, growing cattle, digging up iron ore, digging up coal, education, because we've got a lot of foreign students, so that's it. And everything else will buy off the back of a boat. Well, the boat's not coming now. So yes. you can't get cars for love and money. There's this supply chain chokes. So you'll find Australia will move away from that, that uh, flat uh, economic plane surface that was, I think was a, was a, was a load of crop anyway, because I can see that was going to leave us vulnerable. And you're presuming all players in the international sphere are going to be, uh, you know, the tragedy of the commons. I mean, is that a term you guys teach? But uh, uh, No, I'm not, I'm not familiar so with it. It's an economic term where think of there's 100 acres and the village has access to that 100 acres. So everyone can put their two sheep on there and everyone, if everyone did it well, everyone gets a fair share. But let's say the guy wants to put 40 sheep on there and just graze the crap out and the rest of the community suffers because of it. He benefits, but overall there's, there's, a, there's a, a drop in everyone else's economic benefit. Yeah. So that, the, that's the tragedy of the commons. So if everyone plays fairly, it works. But unfortunately in, in our uh, global world, and has been for history, it never works like that. So you've got to have strategic interests like maintain this is why we've always insisted we manufacture our own boats or ships and um, submarines and that because it leaves us with a defense capability so i'm working up with this client who's actually in that headspace not in Tamworth, but in another another regional city yeah and i can't really go into it because i've signed confidentiality of course yeah that's all but good. <laughs> he's making business decisions on that type of stuff yeah and he said i need you to also give me a backup plan in case the defence contracts fall over or, you know, so we're looking at, you know, what's the options for agriculture and that. So we're doing what Australians are good at, keeping options open. So um, so that's that thing. So it needs access to por uh, ports, it needs access to um, trained people, it needs access to a university. Um, it needs a, a local government area which is gets it and understands the security issues with that. There needs a community gets that. So I've got to go and articulate this in a way to the community that's saying this is going to be a benefit to you guys. Um, things like um, SpaceX um, and the, you know, Australia's finally woken up that it needs a space industry. Mm. Now that is, you know, we're the sixth largest country, continent in the world. Why the hell do we let go of our space capability? So the uni degree I did, um, it, it, like I did electronics, um, we had GPS, so we were, we were talking with the guys about how do you work out satellite orbits, and you know, we had lecturers who worked for NASA and that. And you know, we can do it theoretically, but we can't actually do the, the circuitry board, put it on a on a, a series of forty four gallon drums ignited and send it to the sky, and then map. We have we have we have deliberately, and I think it's a lazy policy, walked away from that and said so we'll deal with the Brits and the POM site. Yeah. Now, when the Brits and the Poms are busy with their own crap, like they were in World War II, particularly the Brits, we we're all left on our own. All of a sudden, we had to go from being a country that shore sheep and plowed the ground to manufacturing planes, and we did that. So we can do this type of stuff, and I think we're going to do more of that. So you're going to see your guys at school now can make a career choice that will give them a career. They could go leave Crindai High School or Tamworth High School and go straight into a good university to get offers an aerospace degree or anything electronics, even yeah. a TAFE degree in electronics. 
it's interesting that you bring that up because I do know that it's hard to find things that truly interest kids nowadays because they pretty much feel like they've seen it all. Um, the one thing that always interests kids is like that new frontier. Like that always sparks curiosity. Doesn't matter if it's the kid up the back who's always sleeping or like the smart kid who could probably actually have a crack at building some of these <laughs> things. Um, so yeah, I see that definitely as one of those trends that if we move away from this singular focus economy, which seems to just be digging stuff out of the ground and giving it away, like we can't do that forever. Um, and if we realize, like you're saying, that the world may be soaring COVID, like places like Australia and the United States and the UK saw how um, like the emperor had no clothes, that it's like, oh, shit, like we don't actually make masks here. We couldn't make hand sanitizer just because it all came from, say, China, the world's factory, that if we're moving back towards becoming more self-sustainable, that might, like you said, give more job opportunities and you need to be ready for those if you're right. about to graduate from high school. So on a, one of the surveys, so I'm on the training committee for the New South Wales Board of Surveyors. Um, now that's a government body. It's in legislation. The Surveyor General's got to report back to her minister every year and all that type of stuff. And one of the other participants from Sydney, and he was complaining he can't find surveys because he flies them in from overseas. 457 or what it's now the equivalent visas and with COVID you can't do it so I'm sitting there going well why don't you do what I do which is get young kids and put them through a training program with the, and partner with the university and you'll actually have better aligned kids they will stay they will see that you've got a vision for your company and don't just use just you know you're, they're buying avatar workers the equivalent of buying avatar workers and flying them in and say here's some equipment I'll get out there and do your stuff now, this the world. The world is changing. You there was the, these this complaining. They're the complaining about they can't find engineers. Like Korea and Japan and China's punching so many engineers through university that uh, this is what's driving Samsungs or Hyundai's and Toyota and um, the uh, the equivalents in the in, in China. So China and that that Shenzhou, um, the Delta around the back of Hong Kong. Is, is the electronic capital of the world. That's where a lot of the innovation is going. And that clustering effect comes into it. So I'm, if I can explain clustering, I look at Hungry Jack's, McDonald's, um, or Porto, all those fast food places are generally all together. And that gives choice, but they actually benefit from that because you actually collectively, it's a magnet drawing people into that. And you see yeah. that in industries too. So, with, uh, so in Sydney, uh, with that Lashian and a lot of that um, startup stuff, it's around the old University of Technology near Central Railway Station. Now, in the 1980s, that's the place you went to to go and get a haircut because at the TAFE, free. Because all <laughs> when I had yeah. hair, that's where I used to go. But it is transformed. It's um, it has more innovations coming out of that uni, uni than the older universities like Sydney and the UNSW. Um, and they're, they're actually marrying up the trades and the, and, the, and the intellectual stuff. So it's not just being good at book learning. It's about the, the practical application of this stuff as well. So, um, and when you look at IT now, it is that, you know, you've got to work out the code, but it, I need the laptop to work. I need the mouse to work. I need all the server to work. And 
the, the communication stuff. So it's there's no there's not one linear pathway going in for even if you want to be a bulldozer driver. There's so much electronics in that now. Um, you've got to be a good Nintendo operator to know how that works. And let's say the surface model, the design surface model you're using. Yeah. Um, people like me have designed that, and then I give a USB stick to the operator and said, plug that in there. And he tells me it's not working right. I said, well, okay, what geode you're using? What's your base station? What's your frequency of your, um, of your uh, are you receiving this satellite message at? Is it one second or five second epochs? You know, and they go, what are you talking about? <laughs> said, well, <laughs> it just doesn't work. You, you can't just be a bulldozer driver. Um, a truck driver now is a logistics operator. So you may have driverless trucks, but someone's still got to put the cows on the back of the trucks and, um, because you know, being an agricultural society, that's where we are. Or, and you know, and also we may be going away from meat. I'm not saying next week, but plant-based meat. Mm. Um, it's going to become a thing. The, you know, it'll be that top ten percent, the ones who support petter and um, against cruelty animals. And all of a sudden, there'll be options to have uh, something that tastes like a steak, but it's actually grown through 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 plant-based mechanisms. Don't ask me how. Yeah, but. They're the type of things. If I was thinking about, well, what's the if I'm if I'm a cattle farmer and I've inherited Dad's ten thousand acres, and what's the things that could knock me for six? Mad cow's disease, so exotic disease outbreak. So I better have an insurance policy for that. That's um, but that maybe one or two years I could survive that. But what are the marketing trends? So a marketing trend is that people stop eating meat because mm. it's not seen to be sexy to eat meat. There'll be the lower classes eat meat because that's all they can afford. So, we, you know, people like you and Nicole will be, you know, instead of oh, your children, they'll be buying plant-based meat because that is better for the environment and they'll feel good about it. And if they come to a barbecue and you're sitting there with big fat bleeding T-bone, they'll look like on you as a dinosaur. So that peer pressure thing will come to play. Yeah, I understand where marketing comes into it. going to work. Yeah, so marketing, I, I'm... Like I'm a tech nerd, tech head. It's all about numbers and that. But if I can't message my story to the wider audience, I'm failing. So I now employ a marketer to take my garbled messages and turn it into something that people like my wife and my daughter can understand. So why are we important to society? So why are teachers important to society? Um, and and why are uh, truck drivers? Why is politicians important to society? And then we're in this media world where it's easy. They want to paint a black and white, a goodie and a baddie, because that's what people understand. And there's no such thing. There's shades of grey. Yeah. I've actually got a question about that, um, which which leads in perfectly, that one of the other skills that I spend time with, with my uh, year 11, year 12, and all the junior years, just all history in general, is um, the analysis of sources. So one of the activities I do is, is like everybody pulls out their laptop or I bring some newspapers in and it's like, right, I find me a news story and we go through what's called damn it. And it's an acronym where it's like, look at the date, the author, the material, what's the motive behind creating this source of information, who's the intended audience and what's the tone. Um, and it's a bit enlightening for them to actually do that rather than just read the article and like maybe the clickbaity headline, because I remember one and I, I couldn't have done this better. And it was just pulled out this one article from the newspaper, which was talking about climate change and um, 
like a coal-fired power stations. And it was talking about how China's making so many and Australia's making none at all. Therefore, Australia shouldn't have to have any climate change policy because we basically don't register on the scale. And he's like, okay, well, that's all well and good. And they keep referencing this think tank, which is like, oh, this think tank gives you this information and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, let's do a damn analysis. So where's the information coming from? And they're like, oh, it's this think tank. Do you know anything about it? So I didn't know anything about it. Anyway, we Googled it. Um, and we ended up finding that the main supporter for this particular think tank was Gina Reinhardt, which you can see that there's a, a massive conflict of interest there. So yeah. my long-winded question for that is, is that what's your bullshit filter for all the information? How do you filter stuff to find out the market trends, to find out what the macro trends are, and maybe not just get swept away in this whole like good versus evil, black and white sort of story okay. that goes on. That's pretty easy. So the day-to-day -day media, the, the, the news, actually the local news is actually, isn't too bad. Funnily enough, I think it's probably closer to the truth than anything. Yeah, I love Prime 7 news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They interview me and basically they print what I, well, the leaders must have saying they print what I say, which is sometimes disconcerting, particularly when I don't have a filter on. But the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, it, you, know, you just know, look, they, they've got certain readerships and they're selling stories. That they've got channels. I, get, I don't know if you use the term channels, but the certain channels, the readership or the viewership is a certain demographic and they've got to feed stuff that reinforces their, their, their uh, existing worldview. Yeah. Sky After Dark is a great example of that. And uh, I've forced myself now and again to watch a bit of it and after about 15 minutes, I've just got to go off it. It's... Uh, and um, all right, so I looked at the journal. Uh, there's some journals I've a lot of time for. Greg Sheraton is one. Peter Hatch, he's, he's with the Australian. Greg Sheraton um, at the Australian, and Peter Hatcher with the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I can't stand Peter Fitzsimons. I think I think it, it's just a waste of five minutes reading anything he reads. Entertaining as it is, I'm not picking up anything that's new. Then I also look at. Uh, if they're referring to a, uh, a policy institute, where's what policy institute is it and who funds it? Mm. So the Menzies Centre, well, it's a Liberal Party policy thing, so it's funded by the Conservatives. Um, the Chifley equivalent, it's uh, it's a Labor one. So they they come up with a policy stuff that sets um, stuff that's more filtered to, or um, leaning towards the, the, the left. The thing is they make you write stuff that's relevant. So you got actually do have to read it and think, well, okay, I'm probably going to wait this more than anyway, but let's just see what other other uh, policy documents might say because that might you know might be from a uh, so it might be from a right wing policy institute, but there might be a left wing policy institute put out something which is similar. And you say, okay, the truth's in the middle there. Yeah, so you've got to read multiple sources around the same topic. Um, look, Wikipedia. Funnily enough, I I look at Wikipedia a fair bit. I I look at uh, it's it that the the, uh, the people that go on there hammer hammer any inconsistencies, but again you can't just rely on it as well. Um, the uh, uh, when I'm writing a planning submission, I'm I'm looking at a lot at the uh, strategic documents that are put out from the Department of Planning, the Department of um, Protection Authority, or uh, uh, local councils, 
they're, they're pretty much process driven. They're not, they're not, uh, well, I'll take that back. Planning is a political process. It's, uh, but a lot of the people involved in that uh, pulling together the documents talk to the truth um, and, and don't talk in airy fairy population projections. Um, so I'll look at that as well. Um, the big picture stuff, I try and find journos who I respect, who I can, I think have been fairly consistent. I've got to be careful about my own biases. So um, turns out I'm a bit conservative. I've, I've liberal views, but I'm conservative on a lot of things. Um, but, and also what gets me interested is, is uh, geez, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did all this stuff? And I don't care what it takes us two months to drive through 10 years of change. Because yeah. I can cope with that. A lot of people can't. If it's 10 years of change, I want 20 years for that change to happen. Yeah. The world doesn't work like that. So then if that change, so COVID, COVID's a, a classic. Everyone can relate to that. We've had so much change and, um, and a lot of people aren't coping with that. So you've got to message the change. And so then you come back to the marketing. How do you message? How do you connect with the widest amount of people with the most honest story that they're going to buy into? Uh, that's, that's going away from your source stuff. So I like I listen to ABC, I listen to Prime Local News, I listen to SBS. Um, but the macro stuff, I'm reading, I'm hearing podcasts like Neil Ferguson, the, the Scottish uh, economic historian who's based at Stanford. Uh, I, I read a fair bit of his stuff. Uh, I'm interested in economic history, like why, you know, what caused industrial revolution? Why did why did certain parts of the world develop uh, against others? So. Uh, often comes down to the natural history, you know, the, the natural um, advantages of a region. Um, mm. But why did why did industrial revolution happen in England, not in France? Because France was the superpower. Yeah, generally, and England's natural rival. And England had to align itself with Portugal and Holland to to you know as it gang up against the huge economy of France. So France was at twenty million people, and England was at five. So there's a four to one ratio with somehow England won. I just find that fascinating. And yeah. you know, what was the social situation there that happened? So the Reformation, uh, you know, that the you know moving away from the Catholic Church, and I'm a Catholic, and I'm, so I'm, and Lutheranism, I find that interesting. So a lot of these social changes actually translate to economic change. So and you're reading, and I don't have time to read everything, um, unfortunately, but I try and think, so what changed that? What you know, what is that? And I really haven't got into like World War One. What what caused World War One? And mm. in the day, it's easy to say what caused World War Two, but what caused World War One? And you can map back, you know, there's this cause and effect. So World War Two was caused was caused because of World War One. Well, what caused World War One? Well, the Franco-Prussian War. Well, what caused that? <laughs> why? Yeah, why most did that people happen? would just say, Oh, there was an assassination. And <laughs> yeah, no, it's more than I, that. <laughs> yeah, I gotta do a whole I do almost like three weeks of just prep work for World War One because just looking at the causes for a crisis are, are almost more interesting because you're just like, look at this web of just like alliances and attitudes and like imperialism, imperialism nationalism. And at the end of the day, you've, you've got this complex web of like people who are all related who have all these armies who have nowhere left in the world to conquer anymore. Yeah. Like Europe owns 80% of the world at this stage. Yeah. And 
you just chuck a spark in there and then the tinderbox goes off. And you talked <laughs> about trends beforehand. Now, mm. that was one of the most uh, serene, economically uh, but, um, busy times. Of, you know, it was 1910s, 1910 was just a pretty nice settled, settled time. And and we know that, well, you know, it's perfect. What's going to go wrong? And then World War II, one happened. And then then the Roaring Twenties, then the Depression, and then World War II. And that it wasn't until the 50s again, you know, it seemed we had to go every 30, 20 to 30 years before we got these settled periods in our, in our time. So, you, you know, you're looking at trends. So we've had a pretty benign economic period in our life. And um, and most, most even your students' parents would have had a pretty easy Compared to my grandfather, he was in World War II. He lost uh, dad's cousins. They fought in Malaysia and lost a cousin there. And uh, we've had a pretty benign um, existence. And I feel that's about the change because the trend is that it's never this quiet for this long. Um, mm. It's been it's been an aberration. And so if we're going to have a period of uh, upheaval, what's that look like? And what does Australia have to do to cope with that? Does it turn itself into Israel, where Israel, everyone's in, uh, conscripted and their whole industry is focused on self-defence? And, and that's why it's one of the most innovative places in the world. You know, and is that because of, of a persecution complex? Is it because they're surrounded by enemies? Is it, or is it because they're... Their culture, their Judeo-Christian, more Judeo, but you know they share that same cultural background that we do. You know the Judeo-Christian uh, culture that we have. You know respect property, respect women's rights. You know this, the, the importance of our society, how it's structured, compared to say a traditional Islamic or Buddhist or Hindu society. Um, yeah. And overlay that with the traditional British. Uh, civilization, you know, the, the the focus on institutions as against say Napoleonic um, or German institutions. Where and it's interesting you talk to the Europeans how because we had a couple of European lecturers, Swiss and German, and uh, they couldn't understand our our slack ways. But when push came to shove, we're all working hard to get you know throughout our courses and that. You know, England. Uh, probably diminished now so much we can see echoes of it in the u.s um, culture where individual rights and individual property rights are held sacrosanct in europe that's not so much the case i think they've realized years later that that's probably what they should be doing because if someone feels like they're getting benefit from their hard work well they should get the you know keep that where a lot of those societies said no no it's for the greater good of france or germany or russia uh, hence why a lot of Russians emigrated to the US because they feel like I was would I put the hard work in. I get so you can't discount those type of societal um, environments um, that allow that to happen too. So openness, openness to society. So that and I think you see in America and certainly in Australia too. It's like Israel for our. So we talk about freedom of it, um, of uh, expression. Right. so I'm going to call everyone who's a gay uh, heathen. Well, you can't say that to me. So I've got this these culture wars going on, and that's yeah. just a sideshow. So, um, <laughs> and hanging around a couple of the uh, Liberal Party meetings, and that it's just a it's a culture war. They think they're in a culture war. And yeah, okay. And they're not really. They're they're in a. To me, it's like a university 
student union debate. The big culture war is what type of society we're going to have. Is it going to be Chinese one uh, centered, which is their cultural norm, I think, um, like Russia, the Tsar, the Chinese emperor. I think that's what their communities are used to. And while, whether you can labor communism or socialism or what, I think that's just the way they're used to running a country. Whereas yes. with a we, figure, have, central we have that history of English um, individuality. And, and that's from the Romans, the Normans, the um, Anglo-Saxons, where everyone's been fighting each other. And so no one's willing to give up any ground. So, so that part of history I find interesting. So why are we doing the stuff we're doing now? And all I can think of is it's just this, this hodgepodge of stuff that's happened over the last 2,000 years, or yeah. 5,000 years has given us to this point now. But you and I are talking about this, feeling safe in our home environments. Yeah. That we can own our home. It's not going to get resumed without compensation. Our kids are going to be looked after. The health system looks after them. They're going to get educated to a level which is pretty good compared to other nations. Um, so uh, I know the original question was about sources. <laughs> no, no, this is good. This is good. We've, we've <laughs> but, evolved. And my daughter-in-law, <laughs> my daughter-in-law hates me when she goes. She'll make some comment that says, "I don't know." Let's think. Uh, I don't like the Labor Party. I said, well, why don't you like the Labor Party? Because I don't, because they're, t they're whatever, they're lazy. Well, those trade unions said, well, hang on a minute, maybe they need to be fighting for their, the workers' rights. Anyway, they, uh, and they said, you know, I don't like history. I said, well, history is one of the most important subjects in the world. You need to know about history because that's how we know, gives us an idea how to go forward. It's the trend line stuff. If you got in doubt, just project the line for forward yep. and you got, you got, Pluses and minuses in that, but you're probably better off than just hoping the hell life's going to continue as a no, because it won't. It never does. No, absolutely. Like you've got these cycles of perhaps maybe it just gets to um, like this point where crisis is kind of inevitable. I'm a little yeah. bit of a subscriber to, um, just trying to remember what it's called. It's like cycle theory that demographics are perhaps the strongest trend. And if you can work out what period of time you're in and perhaps maybe what demographics um, situation you find yourself in, that you can almost predict when you're going to have periods of like social upheaval and you can prepare for that in whatever ways appropriate. Oh, so, I've never heard of that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's like a generational theory. It's by Neil Howe. I've had people say, oh, it's just, that's just stupid pseudoscience. But I think it's people who perhaps maybe don't take a chance to stop and think that, well, if you have, say, like the baby boomers, for example, that they are the dominant generation at the moment, if you're talking about consolidation of power and wealth, um, and they're the perhaps the generation that is leaving and they're looking to, um, relinquish this power or give it away willingly or unwillingly. And then you have this whole other generation, um, whether or not that is going to be Gen X or the millennials, which are going to look to step up into that field, of course there's going to be changed because they're completely different people and they've been raised by, com by completely different people. Like we all know that how we might have acted against or not wanted not wanted to be our parents or whatever or 
experience a different upbringing. Like we talk about some parents today um, being like helicopter parents. It's just like, well, why is that? And what's that doing to the next generation that's going to come along? And then if those generations are experienced to a massive crisis, does that harden that particular generation? So, yeah, yeah that it's, it's just like you've got these influencing waves that are happening. My, uh, my cousin's son was deployed to Afghanistan. Now, he married, a, he was a warrant officer. He's um, in Royal Australian Engin uh, Mechanical Engineers. Um, his wife's a lieutenant. She did a tour of a couple of tours of Afghanistan as well. Uh, and she told me a story where she, she got asked to go on a debating team for Australia. And there was four countries. And I can't tell you the names of the, the other three countries. Uh, and it was about a discussion on conscription, the fours and against. And of course, her team was uh, talking about the benefits of a volunteer army, a volunteer defence force, rather. And she said, I had everything covered. I, I was cocksure that I had this 100%, um, um, you know, every rebuttal I, I, I could hand, handle. And let's say it's Turkey, because I'm not sure, in Israel, I know they do have uh, conscription. Probably not those two, but let's go with that. So um, she said, yeah, I sat down, I was pretty happy. Then someone got up from the other side and talked about the benefits of conscription and said, yes, it's hard. You get people who don't want to be there. They're against society, uh, pushing us into this. Um, but what happens, they leave, and they leave with a mindset that's conducive to the betterment of society. And that goes back into society, and it becomes a, a, an influence. And so they, when, and, and then if you do this multiple generation, the cascades down. So people come in, and you, and you give them a values set. Okay, it's indoctrination. But for a place like Israel, where, you know, if we don't look after ourselves, we could get overrun by the Arabs, like the 966 war or whatever. Mm. Um, so it, 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 it gives them that thing. And I saw echoes of that in the fifth, in the uh, 70s when I was an army cadet. So it was this, there was a real thing about that. You know, the country towns really wanted to see their kids do well. And we did a lot more stuff than I see kids do now, where we were given responsibilities that the helicopter parents won't allow kids to do. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that is a concern. It worries us too in my work. We're, we're sending to places where they can't drive, they don't navigate, unless the phone, like we had one girl got lost between Lithgow and Tamworth because <laughs> the phone signal dropped out. Oh, now, she okay, got the yeah. central coast. She had a, she had a, she had a, she was the ducks of a school. She had the honours degree. She had um, awards and that, but still got lost driving from Lithgow through to Mudgee to Tamworth. Now, what, so by all uh, of our society's uh, uh, criteria, she's successful. She's got all the economic stuff that's needed, but in my mind, she's a failure because, and she just went to tears. And one of the guys said, why don't you just keep driving until you come to the next town? Said, what town is this? Which way do I go to go to, to Tamworth? So mm. that's, that's a failing that we failed that girl as a society in teaching her life skills. Dealing yeah. with stuff, the unexpected stuff. And there was another Asian girl I worked with. She was from Vietnam, lovely girl, working in a place near parks called Cookamidra. And she came with an old experienced engineer. And I said to her, Would you know how to get back to Sydney without your phone? No idea. Do you know where we are? No. <laughs> On a railway line. 
outside of Sydney. She said, all I want to do is work in Sydney and, and work on BIM, which is building infra, infra, information management. And that, that worries me that like, they're two cases. Okay, they're female, but they, and they didn't grow up in the country. So that to me is, means that when this change happens, these people aren't equipped for the change. Yeah, because they're so focused. They got the blinkers on for this. This is this one view for success. That's yeah, been yeah. I got I got an engineering degree, so I'm successful. How come people don't think I'm successful? How come people don't give me respect? Well, the, the guy who's welding the railway line together, who's you know probably big, barely able to read and write, he's actually a provider. He's looking after family. He's probably coaching the local footy kit team. Um, he can cope. I mean, you could say, mate, head, head, head to Broken Hill and on the way do this, this, and this. No worries. Oh, the truck blew up. I've got to fix the truck. No worries. I'll fix that too. They're the life skills and that. We just need to marry in the academic knowledge for those guys. So when that truck becomes a, a autonomous vehicle that can Bluetooth to the four trailers behind it that's all self-propelled, that it can manage that as well. That's yep. the type of guy I'd rather have than the guy with the university degree mm. because when the drawbar breaks, the guy without the injury can get an oxy, go and find a welder, some guy with a welding kit to weld it all back together. And this is, we need that mix, mix of academic and, and practical. That's, that's, that, they're the people I believe will be successful going forward. Yeah. Um, and if you can communicate that to uh, your, uh, the group that you're in, whether it's a school, to, uh, the, the, the work group or um, a class and kids, you know, the need for this information is, is quite uh, or this skill set is to me is quite high. Um, you know, at three o'clock in the morning where we're doing a railway job and something goes wrong, the design doesn't work, some material doesn't show up, and this train is coming at three uh, in three hours' time at six o'clock in the morning. All the rules go out the window, you've got to brainstorm an outcome. And everyone's in the in the trenches with you trying to figure out a solution. You don't have time, you know, and that's what the crisis situation teaches my guys and my company and some guys can't handle that particularly guys who come through the traditional academic pathway the guys who come through the hybrid one of studying and working the disenergy thing they they it, these little these little changes don't don't hurt them as much but when they come out this clustered economic environment into the real world situation it's just freak out and say shit i can't handle this i'm going to go work for local government yeah <laughs> I know my dad talks about this sort of stuff that you're saying all the time. That he, <laughs> I know, Bob, yeah. Yeah, constantly gets um, people who just, you know, just want to be told. They Like, they want to be micromanaged. They don't want to think for themselves. Like, they haven't had to be put in that situation where it can be uncomfortable. But once you do it a couple of times, it's, like, exhilarating and it's empowering. Oh, I think it, you become addicted to it. Yeah. I wrote a blog about this, about about being the best you can be, where you are on a job site and, and you may be asked about the economic drivers of the region. So that's happened to me a couple of times. So, you know, so you, you know the soil mechanics of the site, the wet weather, accommodation, uh, uh, signal cables, uh, power lines, lack of staff, lack of competency. Um, why doesn't the people in Paramount understand the, 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 the difficulties of working over here? And, and often we're the only educated person on the site who, who gets their, their problems. So you actually become a counsellor half the time as well. And I love it. I, I could not work in state government. I could not, because you don't get these, these challenges like this. And 
Um, you don't get the opportunities to to be creative. It's a creative. Uh, I know surveying people don't think that you just you just stand on the side of the road with a big ruler. You get to be creative in your solutions. Um, if I can tell you one story, I was asked to go down Luton Shire. There was an intermodal next to a railway line, partly done by a private uh, uh, developer. It was a farmer, farming background, so the farming mentality has got to be done the cheap and uh, minimum amount of work and that. And because I had subdivision land development road and a rail background, the council asked me to get involved in doing the master planning for the thing. So we had things like native vegetation clearing, drainage, how we're going to get power lines through there. There's a big gas pipeline run past. Can we get access to that to build a bottling plant, actually manufacture bottle? You know, get there's the sand quarry further down the road. <clears throat> it's a it's the Murrumbidgee irrigation area, big wine area. So you could probably they bring a million bottles of uh, wine glasses across from Adelaide every year. We make that locally there. Yeah. Um, how are we going to get our, uh, what's the road transport system going to look like? And then we thought, let's future-proof this thing. What? So this is still a valid uh, facility in 50 years' time. So what's the future look like? So you're going back to the things about the fourth industrial revolution. So uh, in, in the trends, going back to this history thing, what are the trends of the first, second, and third industrial revolution? Transport, transportation change. Data management change, education levels change. So we took those principles from the last three industrial revolutions and, and, all, the, and all the stuff I could read to say, well, what's going to be the thing? So, And I know, that, like in my uh, field, like the, uh, the, ink, the uh, GPS, uh, blockchain, RFID tagging, uh, uh, platooning. So in Europe, there's, uh, tr there's cars that are, or trucks rather, that, that have uh, got three or four trailers behind them with prime movers. There's only one driver with four and four prime movers, and it's all controlled by Bluetooth. So they're yeah. almost like a train system running through there. The problem down that part of the world is the Murray Bridge irrigation area was developed in over 100 years. The bridges are there uh, rated for eight-ton trucks. We're trying to think about B triples again. So you've got these infrastructure bottlenecks. So you need to put money into these things. What about the power system? That's got to change. Your telecom's got to um, improve. So because of that, you think, well, this is going to happen. These are productivity enhancing gains and, and the managers of capital are obliged to maximise the return on that capital investment. And if you've got people and equipment, if you can get rid of the people, that, that reduces your salary. Um, it maximises your profits. So people put money into machinery Anything that automates it so I can get rid of people. We're getting to the point, though, particularly in agriculture, where the last person left has got to be across all the technology. Because when something goes wrong, it's, it's hard to find a friend to get out there to fix it. You have to be that guy who can fix the Bluetooth, plus the mechanical blockage, blockages in the header or the flat tyre. Plus, you've got to do all the grease nippling as well. Yeah. So... That's the type of person regional Australia is going to need. A highly educated, practical person who can fix shit when it all goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Rightio. Well, we might end it, might end that there, Mitch. I think that's a great way to sign off for the people who are listening and maybe what they need to think about. And like like perhaps maybe what we've been saying the whole time, that if you are listening from a rural background, like you're not disadvantaged in every way it might have been for the last decade but this next next decade which perhaps globalization is reversing and we're becoming more self-reliant 
and people who aren't, you know, people who aren't resilient, like they're going to struggle and you're probably not. So thank you for, for being One last here. thing, if I could say, find yeah. a mentor. If you can, find someone who gets it. Um, I sort of look after a couple of people. Uh, not, as people look after me. You need someone to ask the dumb questions, like, what do you think of this? And, um, and for me and for my son, when he joined the Army, he, he was during the Gillard years and they were cutting back on, on um, defence budget. He had no bullets for the tank that he was driving you know, rounds. And I said, that's a policy setting because she's allowed to do that. So, but find someone who, who you feel comfortable with who could actually be your mentor. Could be your parents, could be an uncle, could be someone down the road. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's super important. And yeah, it doesn't have to be your teacher or it doesn't have to be anything like that. It can just be someone you know, someone who's older than you probably. Mm. They're always a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, indeed. So well, thank you, Blake. Thank you yeah, for the opportunity. Tough. Yeah, no, it's been awesome. And thank you, listeners. Make sure you like, subscribe, and we'll see you next time on the Modern History HSC podcast.